source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading dying. Would you join me in reading the Word of God together this morning as it's found in the chapter, uh, chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. If you want to use the Pew Bible or you don't have your own, you can turn to page 886. 886. And by the way, a little advertisement as we begin the new year. This is uh, a version of the ESV that we use in the pew. And unlike some uh, Bibles that are uh, where you read through the Bible in a year, this one is arranged just like the normal Bible, okay? But it has little uh, indicators along the way how to read the Bible in a year. You know, some of the read-through-the-Bibles in a year are kind of all chopped up and bunched up in different places and kind of the, the arrangement of the Scripture is lost. But this is a great version that allows you to read through it in a year and indicates in the text how to do so. Um, good time to advertise it as we uh, begin the new year here soon. John chapter 1. I won't read the whole of the chapter We have read it several times in the past weeks, but I will read the first three verses and then skip to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He then speaks about the witness of John the Baptist and speaks of the rejection of the light and some who did receive the light and became children of God. And then verse 14, coming off of those majestic statements in the first three uh, verses, And the Word, that Word that was with God, that Word that was God, that Word that made the world, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thus the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearing and to our lives. Let us pray as we uh, come to God's word together. 
O gracious Lord, you have given us this word by your Holy Spirit, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you will enlighten us to understand this word, but Lord, to know it, to know you through it, to come into fellowship with you, to have your glory revealed to us. Lord, we hunger and thirst for you. We, we come to your word because we come to you in it, Lord. But this is where you reveal yourself. We are hungry for you, thirsty for you. You are our life. You are our light, Lord Jesus. And so we pray by your Holy Spirit, enable us to understand more of your glory through this, your word, that we might live out your new life, the abundant life that you have brought for your people. We pray it in your name. Amen. As you can see from the title, the point this morning is to ask, what does his being made flesh mean to you personally? This is a very personal passage because as he speaks of his glory, he speaks of his being full of grace and truth. And then after the parentheses in verse 15, he says, from that fullness we have received. And so I want just right at the beginning for you to understand the glory that was revealed had to do with grace that we have received a fullness of grace. Not a glory that is separate from us in the sense that it, it had nothing to do with us, but a revelation of glory that had everything to do with our receiving what we will see as wave upon wave of grace from God. Now, first, look at this phrase where he says, He became flesh dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. So the, the glory seen particularly in His flesh. Now, as many have pointed out, this word, to, to use the word flesh is a kind of crude way to describe this, actually, in the original language. He didn't just say He became a man or He became a human being. He wants to make sure that you're not mistaken, and I'm not mistaken. He became flesh. It's almost a shocking statement that John would say such, especially of the one who made the world, that he became flesh. Flesh speaks of our weakness. It speaks of our limitations. It speaks even of death. But you notice it says, he dwelt among us. And as many of you know, this, has, this word is the word to tent among us. And it, it's the same word used of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And so it's a specific statement to show that he dwelt or tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent in flesh and blood among us. And it's to indicate that all of these other manifestations of God in the Old Testament have their final fulfillment right here and now in Jesus Christ's coming. This is the final tenting, you might say, the final show of himself, which means all these others are just previews to the final. I don't know if any of you, I know many of you did go to the Impressionist uh, uh, 
display or, or show at the uh, Kimball. Um, and you might remember then, if you went there, this amazing painting by Kaibolt. I had to look it up how to pronounce it because um, I've always thought of it as Kaley Boat, but you don't pronounce the L's. Anyway, so Kaibolt. Well, you walk into this room, and I'd seen the picture before in many different forms, but I didn't know it was so huge. It covered the whole end of the room. It was life-size, maybe bigger than life-size. And imagine if you had seen just glimpses of that picture, and maybe just glimpses of fragments of that picture. And every time you saw a piece of that picture, you thought, oh, that's pretty. I, I, I caught just a glimpse of the color or the shading or the way this or that thing looked. And then suddenly you walk into the room and there's the thing, gigantic and glorious in all of its fullness. That's kind of the feel of this, you see. Just glimpses and snatches of the glory of God. And that's even to include the glory of God shown in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt of glory on Mount Sinai, of all the miracles associated with Moses. All of this is regarded as just leading up to the little trailers of the movie that's finally unveiled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like saying this was finally the life-size God manifesting himself. I love that statement. Some of you may remember the comedian Stephen Wright uh, really off-the-wall kind of guy, and he would just make one kind of disconnected statement after another that you had to think about. And one of them was, he would kind of talk like this, I've I got a map of the world. It's life-sized. You know, <laughs> whoa, how big is a life-sized map of the world? Well, it's as big as the world is, Right. Well, here is the final, true, life-size revelation of God. This is the full thing, the, the final show of God. But isn't it interesting? He's seen in flesh, in flesh. The flesh is not the means by which the glory of God is concealed, though we tend to think of that. That's not what John is saying. This isn't where the glory of God is hidden. It's where the glory of God shines forth in the flesh of Jesus Christ. It's the means by which it is revealed before the eyes of all. The flesh is the medium of the glory of God. That's what makes it visible to us. How strange, how amazing that in the flesh the glory is revealed. And when he uses this word, we beheld, or the way it's translated here, we have seen. This is not used of visions. John is speaking of the glory that was seen in the literal, physical Jesus of Nazareth. And so the, the true glory is not seen in outward splendor. It's seen in the lowliness in which the Son of God lived for men and suffered for men. Isn't that amazing? That's the great manifestation of God's glory in the lowliness of Christ. 
And so he didn't show forth his glory in spite of his earthly humiliations, but by means of these humiliations, supremely in the cross to the outward eye. It's the uttermost degradation. It's the death of a felon. But to the eye of faith, it was and is the supreme glory. And it's interesting that the word for his being lifted up as he spoke of the cross in John chapter 3 and John 8, spoke of his being lifted up. It's the same word as is used of his being exalted in resurrection and ascending to the right hand of the Father in Acts 2.33 and 5.31. And so as... Dr. Blair has said the suffering and struggle of Jesus are only alternative names for his glory. Only alternative names for his glory. And you see, the glory of Christ exalted at the right hand of God is dependent, not just that he died. There was a man named Nicholson that wrote a book, and he said the death of Christ is just the way he had, he, it was necessary for him to die to get back to the glory of the Father. No, it wasn't just a death. It was the kind of death that he died that glorified him. It was the kind of death that he died that showed when he was in heaven, he was the lamb slain for the sins of the world. That is his glory, that he is the lamb slain for the sins of the world. So you see, his death manifests the love of God that gave his only son. He glorifies God in his death by showing what kind of love the Father has for a lost world. The Father will take on humanity. The Father will humble himself and suffer and die for the sake of lost humanity. And he sends his Son to do that. And if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. It is the love of God that has shown forth, the glory of the love of God shown forth in his becoming flesh. And so the glory is the glory of one who has suffered his glorification at the right hand of God and his suffering are inseparable. They're inseparable. And so it appears that it is true that the whole world is created so that the maximum revelation of the glory of God would be met, shown forth in Jesus Christ. The magnificent character of his love demonstrated in becoming flesh and suffering. Here the veil is pulled back in, as, as in no other place to see the glory of God. And I love this statement. This is a painful exploratory surgery. A painful exploratory surgery. Because in the cross, in the suffering, God is made known. And he goes on to say, this is painful exploratory surgery to discover the infinite health of God. Isn't that beautiful? 
the cross in its exploratory surgery and the horrible pain of it discovers to us the infinite health, the infinite beauty, the infinite goodness of God. And so His glory shines forth in the cross. Then, not only that we see His glory in the flesh, in His life, in His death, but he has this wonderful phrase, full of grace and truth. It is glorious of the only Son, the one and only. It, it literally means the unique one, the only one of his kind. Full of grace and truth. This reflects in the Old Testament that joining together so many times as God describes himself as full of loving kindness and faithfulness. Those are the two words, really, that this is a reflection of. Full of loving kindness and faithfulness. Taken together, it means gracious constancy. Gracious constancy. It, it, the, the word truth could be taken to mean, and it is the same as, as being faithful. It underscores his commitment. It characterizes his graciousness as a relationship in which he binds himself to us. You can unconditionally entrust yourself to him because he binds himself to you, his grace. It is unwavering love, full of unwavering love, committed, never failing, always present love. Love that will never depart from us. It's love that nothing can separate us from. That is the grace and truth spoken of here. And so, we can say it's merciful love or covenant love. Psalm 25.10 says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's interesting when Moses wants to see God on the mountain and he says, Show me your glory. God proclaims it. He says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And he says, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. And he says, I am full of loving kindness and faithfulness. When, so when Moses wants to see his glory, God says, here's my glory. Even though he says you'll only see kind of the backside, you'll have a side view of my glory. But when he comes before him, he declares this, I'm full of loving kindness and faithfulness. And so John takes this up and says, that loving kindness and faithfulness we have received in full in Jesus Christ. He has fully shown forth the Father in his grace and truth to us. So his glory, dear friends, is that he is full of grace and truth. And notice in verse 16 he says, and really the translation is better if you read, for from his fullness we have all received. So he's full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory must mean we've come to know his glory that's full of grace and truth for we receive that. We know it. 
We've not just seen a seen it from afar. We've seen it. We've tasted it. We know it. We are living in the midst of it. It has brought us life. We have received from His fullness. All of us have. And so this is His glory. He is full of grace and truth. He has given a full report of Him, verse 18. He has made Him known. He has told the whole story about God. This word is used to narrate a story. And so He is the, telling the full story about who God is, the complete explanation of this God. And what is this God? He's full of grace and faithfulness. Says the same thing later, doesn't he, in John chapter 3 when he says, He, for God, so loved the world that he gave his son. It's the same thing he's saying here, full of grace and truth. This is what Christ showed forth to us. And this word truth, it has a special connection to the cross. It's interesting when Pilate asks, what is truth in John 18, 38? There is no answer given but the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no answer given. But the passion follows. That is how John arranges it. That is how, what, is, what John is saying. The passion narrative gives the answer in deeds. Here, truth is the reality of God showing itself before us and it is God's suffering for mankind. That is the truth. That is the reality of life. God is a God who suffers for His people. And Leon Morris says, truth as Jesus understood it was a costly affair wasn't just words on a page. It was the action of God showing the reality of His love in history. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. You see, I am the truth. I am the reality of God manifesting itself. I am the true and faithful revelation of God. I am the show of who God is and what God is like in the fullness of His love and faithfulness. I am the truth. And you get it from that passage in John 14. That's where we, if you're not familiar with it, that's where that great uh, uh, phrase is taken. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And notice, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Then in verse 7, he says, if you'd known me you would have known my Father also. See, that's what he means by truth. I'm the truth. If you'd know me, you'd know the Father because I am the reality of the Father shining before you. And later he says, after Philip asks him, show us the Father, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am the truth, Philip. I am the reality of God, the true manifestation of the Father. I am the accurate explanation of Him. He has made Him known. So, there is this grace and and truth, the reality of God. But notice how personal it is in verse 16. We have all received grace upon grace. And this 
preposition, grace upon grace. It literally reads grace instead of grace. It, it seems to indicate grace in place of grace, one grace after another, after another, after another, which corresponds to the fullness of grace and truth. The fullness, ever-ending, wave upon wave of grace. It will do so perpetually. The, the salvation brought by the Word is defined in terms of inexhaustible grace. It's interesting when you're standing in the waves, too, that as a wave hits and you're standing out in the water a bit, you feel the pull of it back, but you know it's just getting ready for another wave and it feel a little pull back in another wave. Everything is preparation to give another way. And I, I think it's a beautiful picture of our lives that God is sending grace upon grace upon grace. But if I could draw this analogy, at least between the waves and our lives, many times we feel that pulling away. And if you, just, if you think of that in terms of the difficulties or the, the losses that we have and the things that happen to us that we would say are not good, it's just the preparation for grace to flow to us. That's all it is. Because grace is constant, one after another after another. Grace in place of grace. Goodness flowing. Last week, uh, last uh, Christmas Eve, this past Wednesday night, one of the phrases I was using as we were distributing the Lord's Supper was from Psalm 23, 6, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And this is one way to say it. We've received grace upon grace. And so, this grace is the backdrop of Everything that you do, it kind of forms the sound of your life, brother and sister. The context of all that you do. We all live on the seashore of grace. It's where we live and work and play and have our fellowship with each other with the sound of grace. Constant. And if you see life as basically a deprivation, as loss as what you don't have in comparison of what others have or what you wanted to have, then you've lost the capacity to see or hear or feel the rays of grace that come to you in Jesus Christ one after another. That's not just for us. It's for anyone who trusts Him. And the likely problem that you and I would have in that case is really we don't want Him. We want something other than Him, and we don't have it. That was the Israelites' problem. They came out into the wilderness, and they had grace upon grace in the Old Testament sense in that they had full access to the Father. In fact, they didn't even have to go and plant their food anymore. For a while, they just go out and pick it up every morning. They had a time to fully devote themselves to the Father, and the Father was theirs, and theirs was the Father. And they said, but we don't have the food that we had back in Egypt. I wish I was back there. 
They were more concerned about food than the living God that was there to meet with them. Imagine having Yahweh all to yourself in the wilderness. He had created a kind of paradise in the wilderness, a feasting on God to have their delight and enjoyment of Yahweh. But all they could think about was the food they missed in Egypt. They saw it not as gain, but as loss. They were not full of joy. They were full of self-pity. John says, we have all received grace upon grace. His fullness has come to us. And so the revelation, the, the showing forth of the fathers, he says in verse 18, he has made him known. It means a revelation of God, of the grace of Christ to us. And finally, just a word about the signs. Just a word about signs. It's interesting, as we see in uh, chapter 2, there's a, there's a connection between the word glory here that we see and in chapter 2 when Jesus changes the water to wine. And it says there in chapter 2 um, <clears throat> that, verse 11, this was the first of his signs that he did in Canaan. The first of his signs means act of power and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Now, at the very end of John... <clears throat> John says, I've written all of these, I've given you all of these signs so that you may believe that he's the Son of God. But this is what's so interesting. In chapters 1 through 12, we really have the miraculous signs of Jesus. Chapter 13 and on has to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But he doesn't say at the end of chapter 12 when he's listed all of these signs, I've written to you about all these signs so that you might believe in him. He does it after both halves of the book. To show that the greatest sign, in fact, the meaning of all the signs, has to do with his death and resurrection. And I've told you about, yes, the miraculous signs he did, but here's the point of all of those. Here's the meaning behind all of those. He, was, he died and he was raised to glory for us. That's the great sign. The great sign. And so, as you come to the water and the wine, you have to connect what he says here, that the water to wine is not just showing the power of Jesus, so that, wow, he must be the Son of God, he must be God, that he was able to change water to wine. That's not the real point, although it's part of the point. The point is that he is showing forth the fullness of grace and truth. That's his glory. That's the only glory John could be thinking of. He manifested his glory because he's already described what that glory is. It's glory as the only son, full of grace and truth. We've received of this grace of its fullness. So you see, the water to wine was the symbol of the new relationship that God would have with his people. It was the symbol of the marriage feast beginning, of the new intimacy that God had with his people. 
It's the revelation of his happy marriage with his people in unrestricted, intimate, wholehearted relationship and communion that this has come in Jesus Christ. And he purposely manifested it at a wedding to say of all the statements in the Old Testament that speak of the coming marriage of God with his people, it is here. See, he manifested his glory. The fullness of grace and truth has come. And the the greatness of being able to change water to wine shows you he has the power and authority to bring it about. Salvation has come for God's people. The full orb salvation that results in the happiness of celebration and freedom and forgiveness and communion with God. And so water to wine means all-powerful love, accomplishing love, powerfully rescuing love, transforming love. Water to wine is not just a show of power. It is a picture of the transformation of individuals, the transformation of relationships, and ultimately the transformation of the world itself. It's the picture of the new age dawning, the age of God's marriage to his people in which he is intimate with them and shows unrestricted favor on them always and forever. It's the full happiness of God's blessing poured out upon us. That's the glory in the water to wine, not just, oh, he's able to change water to wine. And isn't it encouraging in that sign that he will bring life in the most unexpected ways? He will bring life where there is none. He will bring life where there's only death. It will spring up from nowhere. It will be his powerful action regardless of human weakness and incapacity. And he made six giant jugs of it. Not just jugs, but multiple. You know, each container was multiple jugs of wine to indicate the fullness and the richness. What a what an appropriate first miracle to express what Jesus what John says here that we've received of his fullness grace upon grace upon grace and the wine flowed at the marriage feast to indicate that glory well for you Jesus Christ is the place where you can meet God the old puritan writer Hutchinson said one of the most Beautiful things I've, I've ever read. You know that word tryst. Uh, it's an arrangement to meet, you know, privately, especially between two lovers that they have a tryst and they meet alone. And in the Old Testament, it's interesting that the, the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting, the place where you met with God. And so Hutchinson, speaking of the incarnation, he says, the Son of God thus incarnate is the trysting place wherein sinners may draw near unto and meet with God. That is so beautiful. He is the trysting place where you and God can meet in peace, where you can meet God and be forgiven, 
where you can meet God and receive his life and his fruitfulness and his strength for your life and his presence for your life. He is the trysting place where you may draw near to God and meet with God. And isn't it encouraging that those who come to him, he doesn't receive anything from you. He gives to you. We receive of his fullness. We come empty. We come helpless. We come broken. We receive of his fullness. That's what happens in the meeting place. Not you bringing to God something worthy or you bringing to God your strength. You come helpless and empty. You receive of his fullness. His fullness. And I urge you, don't turn from him. As I said Wednesday night, don't turn from the one who's given himself, especially in this season. They were talking about the fact that so many of the Jews of the day, looking at his humanity, rejected him. And as one writer said, this was nothing but an attempt to hide from his glory, which was made forth, made manifest in his humanity. A hiding from his glory. And I urge you, don't hide from the glory that is grace and forgiveness that is life itself. To think that God has tied His glory to doing you good. Tied His glory to giving you the fullness of His love and His faithfulness forever. Oh, receive Him. Especially in this season that is the celebration of the gift of God's love. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we exalt you that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only, your unique one, your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you that the glory that was shown to us was the glory of gracious constancy. It was the glory of faithful love. And if you are so faithful that you will give up your life for us, that you will die in our place. Oh, Lord, we can entrust our lives to you and to your care, knowing you will do us good. And everything you command us to do is for our good. We thank you that our life is one of grace after grace after grace. We thank you that we live on the seashore of the waves of your grace, Lord. And yet we confess how often we do not recognize that. We do not have our eyes fixed upon the love of the cross, clearly shown in that dictating our interpretation of every part of our life, but we put it in the background, we hide it, we stick it in a cave, and Lord, we misread our providences. We misread our situations as not being a means by which you will show more of your grace, but we use it for self-pity. We use it to whine and grumble, even as the Israelites did in the wilderness. We confess, Lord, our sin. Our sin of really not wanting you. You above all else. You, even if it means to suffer, that we might have more of you. Even if it means loss in this world, that we might have more of you. Even in loss, you always are showing us grace upon grace. Enable us, Lord 
to interpret our providences and to see your glory even in the midst of the worst things that happen to us. Oh, Lord, we rest in you. We pray that if any here does not trust Jesus Christ, that they even now will find in him their trysting place to meet with you, O God, you who have so graciously given your Son that anyone, anyone might come to him and receive forgiveness and everlasting life. Bless us to that end, for we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?